Welcome to the Burning Archive. Today we're saving from the flames of the Burning Archive the books of Patrick White, the only Australian to win the Nobel Prize. Why might you want to read his works today, 50 years after the prize and nearly 80 years after his first novel? That is the question on today's Burning Archive. Uh, we had the press all night battering on the doors. <laughs> That's what made me think I had won it. Oh, then I did, this morning I had telegrams from Stockholm and the Swedish ambassador. Mr. White, have you come to the point where you're saying, is that, that's it, uh, finish, I'm not going to write another book, or are you still going to keep on writing? Yes. Well, I'm not writing at this moment, but my publisher has another book. And I'm preparing to write another one. Can I ask what about? No. Now, if you are an Australian of my age, you almost certainly know of Patrick White, uh, but it might have been a little while since you read his books. Indeed, in preparing this podcast, it, I sort of read a bit more of Patrick White, who really I last read uh, about 40 years ago. But White is an important figure in Australian culture, Australian society, Australian history. Uh, he's an important figure for having been the only Australian winner of the Nobel Prize. But he's also important for what his writing, his novels, uh, came to symbolise about Australian culture and society. Now, if you're listening from outside of Australia, an international audience, you may not even have heard heard of Patrick White, although some people say he's one of the most significant writers in English in the 20th century. And you should know that Patrick White was, and to some degree remains, a controversial figure in Australian culture. He uh, is not a very Australian, Australian writer, you could say. He um, had a very complicated relationship with this country and is very much in the great European modernist tradition of writing. In fact, the great European modernist tradition uh, that has been so important to me in my sort of explorations in literature. Some say he is even uh, among the select few of the best novelists in English in the 20th century. And if you haven't heard of Patrick White before, whether in Australia or overseas, there was a film in 2012 of one of his novels, The Eye of the Storm, that was starring Charlotte Rampling and Geoffrey Rush, the famous great Australian actor, which would give you a video filmic uh, insight into the nature of his books. But his star and his influence is to some degree fading uh, in Australia, I suspect. Respect. Just looking around and doing the research for this podcast, he, he just does not seem to figure all that much. I haven't really seen any reflections yet on the fact that it's 50 years since Patrick White won the Nobel Prize, for example. Even though, of course, he is of lasting significance in the canon, in the burning archive, because he did, after all, win that Nobel Prize. He joined the immortals of 
of literature. So why might you want to read Patrick White in 2023, 50 years after he won the prize, 80 years or so after he uh, wrote his first novel in the midst of World War II. Well, the Nobel Prize Committee said that they awarded Patrick White the prize for an epic and psychological narrative art which has introduced a new continent into literature. And that is kind of true, but it also, to some degree, it is kind of true. He, he does represent high-end literature talking about Australia, and quite significantly so through the 50s, 60s and 70s. But it also, to some degree, portrays something of a strong Eurocentric or Western Atlantic mindset of those members of the Swedish Academy in 1973. A new continent, really, uh, coming into literature. Perhaps even a bit of that mindset of Patrick White himself, because White had a love-hate or even an abusive relationship with his home country. He said, it's the country of my origins. That, I think, is what matters. In the end, whether one likes it or not, certainly I had to experience the outside world and would have felt deprived if I didn't have that behind me. But it's from the Australian earth, Australian air, that I derive my literary, my spiritual sustenance Even at its most hateful, Australia is necessary to me. Australian earth, Australian air, but not really Australian culture or Australian people. And perhaps that is part of the uh, mixed legacy of Patrick White within Australian cultural history. White was in many ways an exile at home. There was a book around 1980 or so, about another group of Australian women writers in the 1920s and 30s by Drusilda Majeska, I think, called Exiles at Home. And in many ways, that idea expresses something of Patrick White's imaginative world and his social, cultural, and his cultural, social, cultural, and to some degree even political significance. And I'm going to explore three aspects of Patrick White as an exile at home that give you some better, more grounded reasons to read White than the somewhat grandiose Eurocentric or Atlantocentric Nobel Prize commendation. First, his life and work really represent post-1945 Australia and its cultural elite. As it went through, Australia kind of went through its own process of cultural decolonisation. Second, his novels are superb examples of 20th century modernist uh, European-influenced literature. And that combines poetic language with mythic themes like all the great modernists. It, it, it is a form of experimentation in language that is really uh, probably his most enduring legacy, more perhaps than some of his sort of social beliefs. And then thirdly, his novels explore the, the myth, the idea, the concept of the stranger, the outsider, the outcast who goes 
inward to search for imaginative salvation in a hostile culture, in a hostile environment. And of course, the outsider is one of the grand themes of modernist literature of the 20th century. Think Albert Camus, L'Etranger, or The Stranger, or The Outsider. And Patrick White himself said, and this comes, this is the quote that sits at the start of David Marr's epic biography of um, of Patrick White. He said, Patrick White said, I am the stranger of all time. So it was very much the way White himself identified himself, I guess, or thought of himself. And I think, too, it's many ways the symbols, the texture, the the metaphors and the symbolism and the stories that I absorbed when I read Patrick White as a as a uh, as a teenager who perhaps felt also he was a stranger of all time but that's also maybe why i haven't read him for 40 years or so i'm also doing something a little bit different in the podcast today i'm starting out a exclusive subscriber only extended in-depth section of the podcast and in that section today i will look at a fourth dimension of patrick white which is the paradox of how this stranger of all time became in some ways the establishment uh, culture in australia and what that tells us about australian culture and society today Yes, I have introduced a subscriber-only paid tier uh, and more on that at the end of the show. But you can also sign up through Spotify and through Patreon. You can support and get a little bit more in-depth content from the Burning Archive that way. You spent a lot of your time in England, mm. yet your books are Australian. How did, how did you manage it? Because I suppose it's in my blood. You feel that? Yes, my heart isn't altogether here. I think my heart is in London, but yes. uh, my blood is Australian. Okay, let's look first then at the first theme, uh, the first reason to read Patrick White in 2023, and that's a bit of an exploration of Patrick White's life and works as representative of post-1945 Australia and understanding, I guess, the historical experience of that time, which has to some degree shaped and brought us to where we are today. I'm going to give a brief overview of Patrick White's background, upbringing and early life. And it's it's a bit paradoxical because Patrick White is the only Australian to have won the Nobel Prize. But he also, in some ways, is kind of ambivalent. Amb- it's a bit ambiguous as to whether he's really an Australian, I guess. He uh, was very much part of several generations of Australian cultural elites, I guess, who were Australian, but also culturally, socially, even residentially, very much part of Britain, very much part of 
the British Empire. He was born in London in 1912 during part of a travel back to the home country, back to the great imperial metropolis of London, of the wealthy Grazier family uh, into which Patrick White was born. That family owned multiple properties in the Hunter Valley and Sydney. He was, if you like, a member of the sort of Australian aristocracy, the Australian squatter, what's called the squatocracy, named after the squatters who had the great sheep runs in 19th century Australia. Patrick White lived in Sydney and Barrel till he was 13. Incidentally, Barrow, I believe, is also where that other great figure of 20th century Australian cultural history, Donald Bradman, uh, grew up. And maybe Patrick White and Donald Bradman met each other, but I think it was probably unlikely. But when he was 13, his parents enrolled him at Cheltenham College, an elite private school in England. White later described this poorly timed reverse transportation as a four-year prison sentence. He felt abandoned, wrestled with sickness, with asthma that would plague him for the rest of his life and was coming into his identity as a gay man or as White would describe himself as a homosexual. He left the boarding school at 17, determined to be an actor or writer, but his parents arranged for him to work as a stockman and a jackaroo in rural Australia. Uh, Stockman and jackaroo is like, you know, running the sheep, running the cattle in in uh, the great sort of ranches or the great uh, grazier properties of uh, rural Australia, the sheep runs. In his time as a stockman and uh, jackaroo in the snowy mountains and in sort of uh, outback New South Wales, uh, Patrick White began to write his first novels, the first of which uh, was kind of published from 1939, the year the Second World War began. He finished a degree at Cambridge University that focused on uh, French-German literature, which had a profound influence on him, and he prevailed upon his wealthy parents to support him to write in London and to live, I guess, an artist's life. He received early acclaim for his first novel, but published in 1939 on the eve of the European aspect of the Great Imperial War, 1931 to 1945, or more commonly known as the Second World War. That kind of changed plans. And so Patrick White, like many people of uh, many significant intellectual and cultural figures of that time served in the military during World War II. He served as an operational intelligence officer, in fact, in Africa, the Eastern Mediterranean and Greece till 1946. And in fact, quite uh, quite successfully so. He presumably, he was quite a cagey chap. I've got a little clip of an interview with Patrick White where you'll see him really not reveal a whole lot about himself. Uh, like a good operational intelligence officer. But uh, in Egypt, he met Manali Lascaris, who White described as the small Greek of immense 
moral strength who became his life partner. Uh, Manali Lascaris, I learnt in Christos Chokas's fine little book on Patrick White, was also claimed to be, I guess, related to the sort of Byzantine aristocracy from the Byzantine Empire. Uh, after leaving the military, White ultimately decided in 1948 to return to Australia with Lascaris. He bought a small farm in at Castle Hill on the northwestern outskirts of Sydney, which gave him something of a fallback plan. Since his early works, including uh, his book uh, from 1948, The Aunt's Story, did not go as well as his first novel. It was a bit of a disappointment. And so he he had the farm, so to speak, as his backup second day job. And this uh, area that would not dissimilarly to the place where I live in eastern Melbourne, would over time become sort of incorporated into the greater Sydney metropolis from formerly being a a sort of a rural area becoming like a suburban area. And the experiences of that um, transition of a, a more divided city and country into the the new, more wealthy, more prosperous, perhaps more materialistic, consumerist, perhaps less, in White's mind, less cultured suburban life is a very much part of the topics that are covered in Patrick White's novels. Um, he indeed actually would portray this area around Castle Hill frequently in his novels and gave it the fictional fictional name of Sarsaparilla. Anyhow, despite some discouragement after the 1948 novel, White persisted and wrote novels, plays and poems. His last work was in 1987, and he produced an enormous oeuvre over that time. I'll come back to them in a little bit. From the 1960s, he also played a larger role in political issues, getting involved in issues to do with the Aboriginal community in uh, Australia, getting involved in opposition to overdevelopment and destruction of heritage sites um, in the 1960s and 1970s, sort of allying with the sort of radical sort of building unions of that time who uh, took action and put what were described as green bans, refusing to work on the construction of properties that Uh, as was happening all through the cities of uh, Australia in the 50s, 60s and 70s as the population increased, the commercial areas increased, the older city infrastructure started to get a little bit out of date, Uh, office buildings went up and old uh, terraces and other sort of Victorian era um, or 19th century era buildings were destroyed. So White got involved in all these kind of issues and he became a bit of a, he was a savage critic, I guess, of the old uh, conservative establishment in uh, Australia, even though in many ways that was the world in which he was born and which he came from. I think at some point he even described himself as a traitor 
to his class. Uh, obviously, in 1973, he won the Nobel Prize and that elevated his status enormously. And indeed, the Nobel Prize that he received was announced uh, in the same week or very close to the opening of that iconic building of Australia, the Sydney Opera House, also designed by a Scandinavian. Uh, with a very complicated uh, history as well. Uh, I think he was Danish, uh, the the architect who designed the magnificent Sydney Opera House. And so it seemed in 1973 that Patrick White won the Nobel Prize. Gough Whitlam had been was uh, had been elected in 1972, and it, on the theme of its time and overthrowing the old conservative establishment. Robert Menzies and his sort of his uh, deep attachment to the British Empire and a new, more nationalist, culturally um, culturally progressive, we might say now, uh, Australia was being born and one that was also reacting to the culture of the suburbs and some of the more uncouth versions of that. Think Barry Humphreys, Dame Edna Everidge. This is, in a way, a similar kind, a more comic kind of satire about Australian suburban, but also, I guess, Western consumerist life post-World War II. That Patrick White was also an articulator of that same kind of satire, but he was a much more savage, less humorous version of it. He was a savage. uh, He expressed, well, frankly, disdain for small-minded suburban life. And that, I guess, that that kind of um, perspective still pervades, I guess, many, many cultural elites. And he was not alone. There was Manning Clark, there was Sidney Nolan, all of whom were, uh, I guess, finding a new way of expressing a different kind of Australia against big themes of mythology, against difficult issues of our history and in a way that was trying to bring out a new cultural nationalism. Uh, The Australian historian John Rickard in his book Australia, A Cultural History, makes this observation that in this era after the trauma of Vietnam War and the, I guess, the you know, the sexual revolution of the 60s, the feminist response, Germaine Greer, uh, another Australian, became a globally significant figure in that uh, the feminist movement and I guess a revolt against some of the materialistic, consumerist um, cultural values of the 1950s and 60s, which perhaps were understandable after several decades of war and depression and strife, but which were experienced by this generation as that small-minded suburban life. John Rickard says this, Certainly much artistic and intellectual effort in the post-war period went into probing beneath the materialist surface of Australian life. If the novels of Patrick White were evidence of this, so then so too has the epic history of Manning Clark. 
There was even an element of optimism in the observation of a character in Voss that our inherent mediocrity as a people was not a final and irrevocable state, but rather a creative source of endless variety and subtlety. Although White and Clark provoked some uneasiness, both have nevertheless been accorded a heroic status in Australian culture. And I sort of explore some of that reversal in fortune or that heroic status of this these figures who saw themselves as strangers of all time in my special bonus episode. And let me add that, um, like, I, I met Manning Clark when uh, I was doing my PhD in Canberra in the uh, late 1980s. And around ANU, there were many figures of this kind of generation who who sort of were kind of lived through the cultural cringe, but also in some ways lived the cultural cringe. Like white, they sort of saw a, a, a greater depth of thought and experience in European life rather than in Australian life. So I feel quite connected to this um, uh, This There's a sort of a link there between the sort of Manning Clark, Patrick White, Sidney Nolan, Alec Hope, many other types of figures of this era and the contemporary experience of us of today. What about uh, the ultimate legacy of Patrick White, which is his fiction rather than his ideas about suburbia or whatever? Um, what, 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 what is it about his writing that gives you a reason to read him? Today, in 2023, uh, 50 years after the Nobel Prize. Do you feel it is an honour? Is it? Could I go so far as to suggest it's a crowning honour? It is an honour, yes. Mm. Could you say it was a crowning achievement of a career, or is that too much? I hope my books are the crowning achievement of my career, not awards, but perhaps that is vain. <laughs> I don't think so. Well, of course, uh, as with any writer of the complexity and uh, difficulty to some degree of Patrick White, people have differing views on him. Alec Hope, who uh, I think I mentioned there, who was like a great Australian poet and uh, English academic who I was still around, I think, when uh, I was at ANU, uh, once described Patrick White's works as, if I can just find the quote here, uh, Alec Hope described uh, White's Tree of Man from the 1950s as pretentious and illiterate verbal sludge. Uh, on the other hand, um, a more recent evaluation of the same book by Christos Chokos described this as one of the great works of literature. And Christos Chokos, who's an Australian writer uh, of my approximate age, Describe Patrick White as the writer who, more than any other, created an imaginative language that we can call Australian, who unshackled us 
from the demand that we write as the English do. And Christos Chokos's little short book on Patrick White, or it's almost like an essay really, is really quite a worthwhile appreciation to read. It, it offers some really excellent insights into Patrick White. But again, another student of Patrick White, John Beston, has a very different view. Rather than focusing on this theme of expressing Australian cultural nationalistic identity or defining an imaginative language different to the Anglo-Australian world that Patrick White in many ways embodied, John Beston really writes, I think perhaps ultimately more convincingly, of White as very much as within the European, uh, as in uh, continental European, not English or British European literary tradition, influenced by people like Flaubert and Dostoevsky and Rambo and others. And his book, Patrick White Within the Western Literary Tradition, is actually a really excellent uh, way into Patrick White's works, especially if you're uh, not an Australian reader and you're not obsessed with whether or not Patrick White uh, defines our national identity. And Beston really emphasises four big uh, dimensions of Patrick White as a writer. His mythic themes. So he has a book called The Riders of the Chariot, The Tree of Man. Voss is a book that is um, that very much uses um, mythic explorations of uh, Odysseus and of uh, uh, the obsessed search even of Captain Ahab. So those mythic themes very much in the way that other 20th century modernists did sort of like T.S. Eliot, uh, Ezra Pound, James Joyce, many others, revitalising some of the classic mythic uh, stories of Western culture and putting them within a more angst-ridden contemporary world. The second big theme of Patrick White as a writer is his very poetic style. And this can at times make his work difficult to read, but it makes it also very rewarding to read. Uh, His third big theme is his religious interests. They, um, uh, Christos Chokos talks about the importance role, a role of Greek orthodoxy that Patrick White, to some degree, absorbed from his partner, Manali Lascaris. And then the fourth big theme is his portraits of the outsider, which I'll talk about in the next segment. So he is a very important uh, figure, as you hear from me, he's very much in the imaginative terrain of other modernist writers of the early, mid-20th century, and uh, definitely worth reading, I think, for those reasons. Let's do a quick little review of his books so that you know what to look for. In a way, uh, Beston identifies, uh, describes several different periods in Patrick White's life. The very early novels, Happy Valley and The Living and the Dead, date from 1939 to 1941, and they express some key themes, and he's quite 
positive about them. But he says the greatest period of Patrick White's writing was between 1948 and 1961, in which he produced the aunt's story, The Tree of Man, Voss, Riders in the Chariot. And then after that, between 1966 and 1973, he produced three big novels, The Solid Mandala, The Vivisector and The Eye of the Storm. The Eye of the Storm is, in a way, a portrait of Patrick White's mother and the uh, uh, dysfunctional Australian aristocratic family. And The Vivisector is a, a, a portrait of the artist that whole, that is shows the cruelty of an artist and in some ways is almost a self-portrait. However, Beston does not rate these books as highly as the works that he produced, those key works that White produced between 1948 and 1961. And then, but he had a bit of a revival in the mid-70s in 1976 when he published A Fringe of Leaves, which is a story of like a a white woman who's sort of shipwrecked and then sort of lives for a long time with uh, an Aboriginal community before ultimately sort of rejoining colonial Australian society, which is, uh, you know, it's like a historical mythic theme in Australian history. And then finally, uh, between 1979 and 1986, Patrick White produced The Twyborn Affair and uh, some memoirs as well. Uh, But to some degree, I think perhaps the greatest books are those ones between 1948 and 1961. I know, like I can remember reading The Vivi Sector um, and being in when I was like, I don't know, 15 or 16 or something. And it is, it it is... um, it is a powerful book, but it is a very cruel book as well. Um, but the books like The Tree of Man describes a, a kind of a classic Australian pioneering saga featuring a character, Stan Parker, who clears his block of land, and then, which ends up as suburban homes, a bit like what Patrick White experienced in Castle Hill. And if he lived in eastern Melbourne, he would have experienced in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne as well. Voss is based on the story of the German explorer Ludwig Leichhardt, who goes searching in the dry, not yet explored by Europeans um, inland of Australia in search, I think, for an inland sea. And in that, it becomes both... It's a story of, I guess, a grand folly of an exploration, but also a kind of a, a metaphor of the search for the inland sea in this desert, this cultural desert of Australia. The Riders in the Chariot depicts four riders who are outcasts from mainstream Australia. Mordecai Himmelfarb, a Jewish refugee. Mary Hare, an eccentric spinster. Ruth Godbold, a working class mother. And Alf 
Dubbo and an Aboriginal artist. And here he paints the average Australian man at the same time as some Australian historians like Russell Ward were developing like the Australian nationalist myth of the Australian legend of kind of the, um, the plucky, larrikin, radical nationalist, you know, salt of the earth Australian man. White presents the average Australian man as intolerant of difference and prone to cruelty. It's that small-mindedness of suburban life. Some people say the Twybon affair is White's best novel. Some people say The Fringe of Leaves is his best novel. Very few people seem to say The Vivi Sector is his best novel. Uh, Indeed, there is a bit of a story that the cruel portrait of an artist in the Vivi sector actually alienated several people on the uh, Nobel Prize Committee and Patrick White might have won the Nobel Prize a year or two earlier if he had not published that book. Whether that's true or not, I, I really don't know. Uh, Beston, who I think is probably the best guide to Patrick White as a literary scholar, says Voss is really the uh, most important uh, and richest of Patrick White's novels. And it's really also his novels that he is primarily, uh, I guess, going down into the canon of the Burning Archive for. He did write plays, never watched or read one. He did write poetry. He also wrote a memoir, but it's his great novels of the period 1948 to 61 and to some degree the mid-70s that Patrick White's enduring legacy and give you that mythic, modernist literature, uh, a certain kind of mythic, modern, modernist literature that is a good reason to read him even 50 years after, after the Nobel Prize. There's, there's been a lot of talk, and it may just be talk, of a sort of renaissance of Australian nationalism and so on. Mm-hmm. Do you think there is one? If so, is it, is it a reasonable one, or is it just so much chauvinism? I think it's rather appalling. I'm not for nationalism at all. It leads to all sorts of dreadful things. Patrick White was still alive when uh, I was a teenager in my early 20s. He died in 1989, I think, or the early 1990s. I sort of lost my notes there on when he died. When did he die? Uh, And I still remember the impression reading Voss and the Vivi sector had on me. Uh, And both Books were portraits of a monstrous outsider intellectual or artist um, presented in this somewhat surreal language that portrayed ordinary contemporary life almost with like surreal images of uh, undercurrents of cruelty and misunderstanding and these sort of grand mythic imaginations that were being frustrated by the pettiness of um, of people. In some ways, White 
could be a very misogynist writer, I guess, but more there was this tone of grand contempt um, that I think did come through in his book, in his books. And it is that theme of the outsider, the stranger, which is, I guess, one of the grand themes of 20th century literature, of 20th century art, I guess. Uh, The idea of the prophetic, artistic outsider who somehow sees society more clearly than the the convention-bound materialist society. That is a very powerful theme in Patrick White. It's a very powerful theme in 20th century literature. And exploring that theme without necessarily buying into the particular ideas of the theme, I think, is the third big reason to read Patrick White. You, it, it, I can't understate how significant that that myth almost of the of the the radical outsider artist who's uh, alienated by a conventional society has influenced the mindset of artists through artists in a broad sense not just painters but you know novelists etc musicians has profoundly influenced for good and bad the culture of the 20th century but it's also one that I ultimately I think is perhaps the reason I ended up stop you know no longer reading Patrick White because there was just that element of kind of disdain for simple ordinary suburban life that I I don't know I could really quite reconcile with the realities of my existence. So they are the three big reasons I think I would offer you to read Patrick White today. You will gain an insight into this significant figure, not only in Australian culture, in Australian history, but really in in a global literary culture. Western or European literary culture. You will gain an insight, but you shouldn't necessarily take Patrick White as a reliable account of Australian society or Australian culture. He is a savage satirist, but perhaps not the most astute observer. You will encounter some of the best late modernist writing with mythic themes and intense poetic language. And thirdly, you will explore the myth of the stranger, the power and the poison of this idea that has been so creative, but also so restricting for 20th century artists alienated from society. You may, like me, ultimately find Patrick White becomes the cruel vivisector rather than the kind keeper of a solid mandala. Uh, You may also end up reflecting on how this stranger of all time, how this stranger of all time ended up being a powerful figure in the culture, not just Patrick White, but all those who identified with Patrick White's viewpoint, who identified with the new, I guess, Australian nationalism, uh, the, the celebration of the stranger within the culture. That funny paradox as applied to Patrick White and as a 
applied to, I guess, the culture of uh, cultural nationalism in Australia that has that emerged from the 1970s on is what I'm going to explore in my exclusive extended episode of the podcast. And I'm going to release that episode of the podcast on Monday, two days after this. But you can go to Spotify and subscribe now to get that extended uh, episode. And you, I've also set up a Patreon account where you can support the podcast and get access to exclusive content. And I'll have links to that in the uh, podcast description. Do check it out. I'd love you to join me. And in next week's show, I'm talking about Olga Tokarczuk, the great Polish writer, winner of the Nobel Prize, and her wonderful book, The Books of Jacob. So until then, thanks for listening to the Burning Archive podcast, the latest in my little mini-series celebrating the Nobel Prize. We've done Annie Ono, we've done the history of the Nobel Prize, we've done W.B. Yeats from 1923, we've done Patrick White from 1973. Next week, we do Olga Togazuk, and then the week after that, I will be doing rapid research to tell you about the winner of the 2023 Nobel Prize for Literature. And until then, check out my new subscription-only podcast. Check out my website, theburningarchive.com. Join my free weekly newsletter, which I've just given a little bit of a revamp to at jeffrich.substack.com. And you can also join a paid subscription there to get uh, weekly additional essays on the big story of the world. And remember what thou lovest well will not be reft from thee.